0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Why didn't Canada designate Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization? And, of course, we cover all things American and their very incendiary political scene with Reggie Giacchini from Global News. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML... Lots of news going on in Ottawa. A public inquiry into Ottawa's use of the Emergencies Act. Remember that from last February? Well, that public inquiry gets underway later this week, Thursday specifically. Brenda Molina Navidad has details for us.
1: The inquiry will look into the decision-making of the Liberal government, which used the emergency declaration to grant extraordinary but temporary powers aimed at ending the nearly three-weeks-long blockades in Ottawa and at borders. Police and city officials described a state of lawlessness downtown, and people living in the area were increasingly frustrated with the noise and disruption of protesters with trucks blaring their horns day and night. Dozens of witnesses are expected to testify over six weeks of hearings, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, and Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland. A final report will be filed to Parliament next year. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian
2: Press.
0: Well, let's use that as our uh, jumping on point for uh, our weekly session, uh, what's happening with the uh, federal politics. And uh, to that point, we are so pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, thank you so much. Hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving weekend.
2: Hey, Bill, I did. I hope you did too.
0: Excellent. Fabulous time. Uh, getting right down to business though, uh, day after tomorrow, of course, the uh, the hearing gets underway. Uh, how risky is this? Um, you know, John Kretchen decided he was going to appoint Justice Gomery to look after the uh, expense scandal that was hounding him. It did not go well for the Liberals. Uh, what do you see happening as a result of uh, what this inquiry will bring out?
2: I mean, I think in this case, like part of it is about the fact that the government is required by legislation, although that's not what this inquiry is a response to. That's that's another thing. But, There is is an actual requirement for accountability here. They have to talk about why they did this. And because it's so unique, because this is the first time that they've used the Emergencies Act, I think there's probably a greater expectation from people that they're going to explain why this was the tool that was chosen. And there's still some debate about whether this was the right thing. I think, you know, for someone like Trudeau to, to be in this process where he's kind of taking questions individually, I don't think he can avoid that. I think that he's stuck with it because he, it's, he's the one holding the buck on this. And obviously Freeland and Mendicino have a lot of face time and, and a lot of accountability for this too. But I think it would look like the government's trying to avoid answering questions and they're trying to sort of rag the puck on this thing and shift things around rather than just go and answer, this is why we did what we did.
0: The uh, opportunity here for the opposition parties, especially Pierre Polyev, to, uh, to score points here is, is overwhelming. Uh, I made this may sound like a rhetorical question, uh, but uh, is this going to get political or are they going to actually get down to the facts of what happened or didn't happen?
2: Well, that's a really interesting point, too, because I don't think they'll be able to resist really jumping in and making this a very politically charged conversation about the liberals not having respect for you know what some will define as a protest activity and the liberals trying to quash any sort of criticism of what they're doing and so when things got you know too much for them then they kind of came in and and shut it down and threw everybody out and so then i think trudeau and the liberals will respond with this was not a peaceful protest this was an occupation and this is what's really wrong and then it will it will cascade into conversations about the appropriateness of, of vaccine measures and mask mandates and and things like, um, you know, vaccine mandates and, and stuff like that. And so I think it will get ideological, it will get partisan. And I mean, people are still going to be looking for the details of, okay, you know, when was the decision made? So like, if you, if you can think back to some other examples, I would say the rhetoric around, for example, the WE scandal was highly charged with this was what the prime minister thought was appropriate because these guys are his friends and he doesn't know how to set boundaries. But as compared to that, if you look back at like Thomas Mulcair holding the the Harper government to account, and I know we're going back a few years here for the misspending in the Senate, Mm -hmm. that was very prosecutorial. And like, yes, when did you know that? Then we go on to the next fact. We'll probably see a little bit of both, to be honest.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, Tom Mulcair was a prosecutor. So, I mean, that he was yeah. right in his, his, his wheelhouse when he was doing that sort of thing. Uh, but th- the risk, obviously, is to the government because they're the ones that made the call. And I, I agree with you totally. I think this is going to dovetail into whether or not there should have been vaccine mandates, uh, you know, but civil servants, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we're going to drag all that stuff up. But the, the last time I remember looking at some of the stats here, though, Laurie, the majority of people in this country were opposed to the occupation in Ottawa. They were opposed to the convoy. Uh, and thought that it crossed the line. Uh, and now, if we're going to talk about who may be on the firing line, to a lesser extent, uh, Pierre Polyev was the guy that embraced them and said this was wonderful, this was a great protest against the Trudeau government. Uh, if people don't like the convoy, do they, by extension, uh, have some concerns about Polyev and his, his embracing some of the people in that convoy?
2: Yeah, like there's, I think there's some complicated, you know, there are overlapping issues here. Because as you say, most people were not in favor of the convoy and its activities. And um, the vast majority of people are in favor of vaccines and got, you know, their full suite of doses. And mm-hmm. so then when you look at that, you think how can the conservatives, Polyev, you know, whoever's face you want to put on it, how there how can there be such political hay to be made? If most people oppose it. And so that's when I think it becomes kind of interesting for Trudeau, because to the extent that Polyev and the conservatives can use this as a springboard to get to issues that still confront the liberal government, like tone deafness to what people are actually living, if they can make this, you know, if they can kind of spin this out a bit to being really about how Trudeau is not compassionate for everyone. He's compassionate for some people, the people he cares about, the things he cares about. But if you didn't get vaccinated and you lost your job and you can't feed your family, like Polyev's approach is going to be like, Trudeau doesn't care about you at all. And so... I think they're gonna to try to push on his brand around being this sort of nice guy who's super woke and cares about everybody. And say actually no, he's very elitist in his approach and he doesn't really care about everybody. He's he's particular in what issues he's going to think are important. So I think there's a, you know, there's there's some interesting things to be happening there. And this is all as Polyev is trying to get Canadians to get to know him better. And so there's going to be some defining of Polyev too, because people are still making their mind up about him.
0: Well, exactly. And I mean, even at the time, as you and I discussed, I guess, back in February, uh, there were concerns about he hanging out, I, I guess, uh, with, with the extreme right elements of that party. And that's not to suggest that everybody was in the kind were, were, you know, extreme right wingers and members of the, the Proud Boys, but many were. And, the, and the, you know, the officials have told us that. And since then... Of course, you've got the uh, the concerns now about his webpage and the misogynist mm-hmm. groups in which he was associated with. So I, I guess that's all going to get thrown into the mix. But I want to segue with that, since we're talking about Mr. Polyev. Uh He had dinner last week uh, with former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, apparently at Polyev's request, which mm-hmm. uh, raised a few eyebrows, I guess, because there were some concerns that Mr. Polyev is just basically ignoring the progressive side of the conservative movement. Uh, but apparently he and Mulroney got on pretty well.
2: Right. And... The, yeah, it would have been an interesting thing to be a fly on the wall for that dinner. Um, And I think, like, there's a sense I read some of the reports about it and Mulrooney really trying to say, listen, you know, if you're going to win this thing and you probably can, you've got to do it by appealing to the center, not to the fringes. Nobody wins elections like that. And so if there's a way that Polyev can re, you know, kind of, I guess, realign some of the things that he's been saying so that he's a bit more attractive to the political center. But then you get the sense from Polyev's camp that they have no intention of doing any of that, that they're not going to, I mean, and it's not necessarily a total departure, but are they going to shift any of their messaging to try to appeal to a more broad center? And would that be in messaging or would that be in content? So is there going to be any sort of policy-based olive branches that will be extended that would make Polyev, for example, more attractive to, you know, women voters, for example, who don't seem to rank him very high right now.
0: Yeah, and it, it's it's it seemed to me as as I read those reports as well that Mulroney was trying to move him more to the middle, uh, and said, look at you know look, get. Get off these things that are, you know, passionate about extremism and things of that nature and, and, and mm-hmm. talk about some of the bigger issues. But as you say, you, you juxtapose that with the comments from Jenny Byrne, who is one of his, uh, his top advisors. Uh, yeah. She, of course, from the uh, the Harper era, uh, said he has no intention of moving uh, anywhere near towards a more moderate approach. So uh, the other element I found interesting about this, too, uh, was uh, Mulroney apparently uh, warned Mr. Polyev not to take Justin Trudeau lightly, and it, as soon as I saw that, it reminded me very much of the same discussion apparently that, Har- that Mulrooney had with Stephen Harper back in twenty fifteen. Uh, and, and remember that that made headlines in the National Post. Uh, you know, what, wasn't Mulrooney endorsing Justin Trudeau, but he just said he's he's a very good campaigner, he's a smart guy, and I, he br- basically brought the same message to Polyev, saying don't take this guy lightly, no matter what the polls say. I mean, that's. I wonder if that's going to resonate with Polyev.
2: Yeah, and I mean, some people are giving Trudeau the same message about Polyev and saying, don't take this guy too lightly. Like he's, you know, he's the force to be reckoned with. He's a threat. I think for Mulroney, you get this sense that this is, you know, the the, with no offense here, this, this is the conservative prime minister of a previous era who's trying to come and say, listen, you know, be sensible in how you go about trying to form a government. Be humble in You know, thinking about your opponent and thinking about what he's capable of because Mulrooney's right. Trudeau is a fantastic campaigner and tends to, you know, over like tends to go beyond expectations when it comes to actually putting together votes. That said he didn't get his majority last time, but that's a different thing. I think for Mulrooney, I mean he probably still is in touch with a lot of people in the party who now feel politically orphaned. Like Polyev is gonna feel like, listen. This isn't the Conservative Party of Brian Mulroney anymore. This is a different thing, and there's lots of discussion about how the conservative movement is actually shifting into something that's maybe anti-conservative. You've got con- you've got progressive conservatives and sort of like you know lifelong conservatives who have always wanted to protect what was right about institutions and not be rash in discarding everything and, and responding to whatever was trendy in the moment. And here's Polyev, basically you know courting the opinions of many people who think that a lot that's happening is unjust and unfair and want to tear it all down. And so is there a way to create a campaign that appeals to all of those? I don't know about that. Do you want to do that? Or, you know, is is Polyev kind of giving into a movement that's really transforming what it means to be conservative? And there is no space there for progressives. So Mulroney might be asking him to do something and, co- and, and coaching him to do something that he has no interest in doing. Or, but then if that's the case, why did he ask for the dinner? Is he trying to just make nice with Mulroney? I'm not really sure.
0: It, yeah, po- politically, I mean, the, the overture here, it, it, there's a message there that, you know, I want I want everybody on side. Uh, but I guess the, the question that still has to be answered here is, does he want everybody on side, uh, you know, marching to, to Polyev's tune? Or is Pauliev going to understand that, look, I've got to be a little more broad-based in, in trying to get support here? Um, and. And, and he's, you know, as, as, as we've talked about in the past, the next election is probably not for another three years anyway. So, I mean, this mm-hmm. all may be irrelevant at that stage because we don't know what the political landscape is going to look like this. But, I mean, it, I think you're right. Stephen Harper never embraced Brian Mulroney as, as an elder statesman. And I think yeah. that really bothered Mulroney, uh, especially, with, you know, when they started the trade negotiations. Uh, Trudeau did bring Mulroney in uh, to say, can you give us a hand here? And you. you you've been around politics enough to know that you know former politicians like to still be thinking hey i'm relevant and and i think that's what Mulroney's looking for here and it's going to be interesting uh harper didn't uh, accept that it'll be interesting to see if if mo if pauliev does and say yeah he he's going to be one of my mentors he's one of the people i'm going to get advice from i don't think he made that overture necessarily but you have to wonder as you said i would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to see just exactly what was said there
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think you're right. Mulroney will want to continue to be relevant in many circles, but certainly in conservative ones. And he'll want to feel like he's got something to offer Polyev, And Polyev knows that and is is interested in accepting it. And so I think the overtures are right. The appearances of it are right. But I mean, the other thing too, is politics is so different now than when Mulroney was successful in forming two majority governments. The way you do it now is different. Polyev and his team are going to be looking at, okay, you know, like where are those margins? Where are the people who we might be able to change their mind? This campaign is going to mean something to to them. If votes start slipping from Trudeau, What's going to the NDP? What's coming to us? What's going to be staying home? They're going to be focused on key writings that might be able to get a win out for them. And if they're not able to get into majority territory, they'll be thinking about how they would form government. For example, if they've got a plurality of seats, but not a majority, who do they work with? It's all so trans, like, it's all it's transactional. And it's also very precise and and calculated and that's not to say that previous politicians didn't have strategies for winning of course they did but it's it's different now and so the types of considerations that polyev has in front of him for becoming prime minister you know it's that's not necessarily the way mulroney thought about things and so polyev might be just thinking this is good advice for me to have but you know my team is going to do what my team is going to do to make sure that i win
0: exactly well they're heating up and as we say the uh the uh, Hearing itself starts on Thursday, and I'm sure the sparks will fly then. Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. Uh, have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good, Bill. Take care. You betcha. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Protests continue in Iran, of course, uh, after the international condemnation following the death of uh, Masha Amini in Iranian police custody. You remember this story now? The 22-year-old died after she was detained last month in Tehran by the country's so-called morality police for her attire. And the uh, protests are continuing there. A lot of violence, uh, and, and it's just a shocking situation. Well, uh, with that, of course, comes the discussion about what to do with a, a certain organization that uh, has been on everybody's radar for the last little while. But our federal government uh, has not bowed to demands to designate Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization. But Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it is going to permanently bar about 10,000 members of the Guards from entering Canada. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland had a message for all Iranian Canadians. Our government will continue to take forceful action to hold this terrorist regime to account. Canada will not be a haven for the IRGC, for its money, for its leaders, or for their henchmen. So is this the right tack to take and how effective is this going to be? Let's uh, bring our next guest into the conversation. Phil Gursky is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa Security Program and, of course, a former CSIS analyst. Uh, Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, How are you, Phil? How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, Excellent. Fabulous weekend. Great weather here in southern Ontario and uh, great to be with family. Uh, so we're getting right back into it. But we did watch, of course, over the weekend. Of course, well, we'll talk about the uh, Ukrainian situation in a few minutes. Uh, but the terrible uh, the protests and the violence that's going on in Iran right now. Uh, I assume with your work with CSIS, uh, I know that you, you did a lot of work about terrorism, especially Middle East terrorism. Uh, you must be familiar with this group that we're talking about here.
1: Oh, very much so, Bill. In fact, before I joined CSIS, I was with uh, Communication Security Establishment, which is Canada's signals intelligence organization for 17 and a half years, where I was both a Farsi linguist and an Iranian specialist. So yeah, I've been following Iran for a very, very long time. And the IRGC is basically an outgrowth of the Iranian Revolution in 79. And it's kind of the gatekeepers of what the Ayatollahs wanted to achieve in Iran. And they're a bunch of thugs that essentially maintain order within Iran and also meddle in countries abroad like Iraq and Lebanon and places like that. So and a nasty bunch of guys to
0: say the least, Bill. Uh, and, and we've seen them rear their ugly heads, I guess, uh, time and time again. Are, are they the ones that are behind? Well, obviously uh, the death of uh, Ms. Amini is, is the story of course, but there have been others. I mean, you and I have talked in the past about, you know, you know, people, gay people being tossed off the tops of buildings and things yeah. of this nature uh, with what they, well, this is what they call themselves, the morality police. Uh, And I guess if you either adhere to the strict code of of what they think is the proper thing to do, uh, or you, well, you could get killed.
1: Uh, Absolutely. You know, I I think all of our hearts go out to Iranians who want to change their regime. I mean, they're good people. They definitely have seen, you know, 40 years now, uh, more than 40 years of this particular very autocratic, very intolerant uh, Shia Muslim regime. They want to change, but the, the government is in a really good place, Bill, in the sense that they hold all the reins of power. And it's not just the IRGC, it's police within Iran or other organizations that maintain control. And, you know, I can't say I see anything changing anytime soon, unfortunately. I think it is, you know, Iran is, is well overdue for change on a number of levels. But I think that the, the regime really does hold an incredible amount of power and can basically uh, quell these protests. And as in the case, um, you know, media, we, we show that they will kill them in event in, in circumstances where they were deemed fit. So, yeah, they there. It doesn't look like it's going to be a good news anytime soon coming coming out of Iran, Bill. I wish I could say it differently.
0: Are you surprised then about the protest that people are rising up and, and pushing back? Not really. I mean, as I said, it's been more than four decades uh, of this regime,
1: and it's it's definitely very long in the tooth. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who of course is the successor to Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the founder of the revolution back in seventy nine, he's very very old himself. He's not quite the charismatic leader that Khomeini was. I think people are just tired, Bill. The economy is in the dumpster. Um, Iranian relations abroad are terrible. The sanctions that have been you know imposed on Iran because of his nuclear weapons program, I think enough's enough. And I think people are you know very brave people. Are going out in the streets and saying that yeah we we want change we want it now so it doesn't surprise me but, and and we have to recognize and, and you know you know this as well as I do that people are doing so and they're risking their very lives by protesting in the streets and being beaten back by the IRGC and the other partners and in cases killed so yeah I, I really tip my hat to people who feel so so fervently and so passionately about changing their country and and, and their government for the better
0: it's it's heart breaking actually to watch what's going on there and the number of people that have already been killed in these demonstrations uh and and as you wonder uh, just a second ago i mean you wonder about the chances of of, of any movement uh in that direction since uh, the government uh, and especially or has such a strong hold on what's going on and and let's face it he has the military he has this organization and even the police on side uh you know the chances of 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 a, of a, a change of attitude or even a change in government there seems pretty slim if not impossible I,
1: I fear you're right, Bill. I think the only way this is going to actually result in, in meaningful change in Iran is if one of the aforementioned bodies switches sides. So if the you know the Ayatollahs lose the confidence of the military, lose the confidence of the IRGC, and you know they decide to actually um, be on the side for change, as we've seen in other countries, Bill. We just had a, a, another coup in Burkina Faso the other day. I think the second coup this year, where the military decides the government isn't of its liking. I don't see that happening right now in Iran. I think that the the sort of theocratic, the ideology that the IRGC and the others hold are very close to the government itself. So that's why I don't see you know the tea leaves don't tell me it's going to change soon. But it would seem to me that average Iranians, as brave as they are, um, they're not going to they're not going to succeed against bullets. They're not going to succeed against you know police and riot gear. So I think there has to be a significant shift in one of those supporters of the regime to say enough's enough we agree that change is necessary after four decades and we're going to join the side of the protesters. I don't see that happening, but you know, I guess hope springs eternal.
0: Well, we've seen that. I mean, I don't think anybody ever thought Khomeini was, uh, was, you know, it, there's a Gaddafi in, in Libya. I mean, there's a number of situations, right? Yeah, all of a sudden these things can happen, but, uh, you know, there is a role I think on the international level for, well, countries like Canada to play. So talk to us, if you could feel about the designation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if if in fact the government was of the mind to designate these the, these people as a terrorist organization, what are the implications? Yeah, great question, Bill. So, the, so the designated list of terrorist entities
1: dates back from to nine eleven. I think it was two thousand and two when it first came out. Uh, so there was no list prior to nine eleven. And what the government decided was that organizations which clearly meet the definition of a terrorist group would be added to this list, which is maintained by Public Safety Canada. The major implication of the listing, um, you know, when I was at CSIS, I don't think we paid a lot of attention personally, not from my experience. The major benefit of the listing is that if you're dumb enough to write a check to Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization, you can be charged with terrorism financing, material support to a terrorist group. Um, If you can prove membership in a group, so, you know, you're, you know, card carry member number one, two, three of the IRGC, That could have some legal implications as well. To me, it really is more of a political statement, one of support for the Iranian people. It is a political tool. I, 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 I hate to remind your listeners, Bill, but the Proud Boys was listed as a terrorist group in the aftermath of the Capitol attack you know, a year ago last January. And as a good friend of mine said, the Proud Boys couldn't make a cheese sandwich on a good day. So it, there's some political aspects to, I think, listing. My understanding is that the Trudeau government is not listing the IRGC per se, but banning members of the organization from entering Canada, which, again, is a good thing. But the listing itself, I, I think it, it's kind of hit and miss in terms of its applicability and usability in, in
0: terms of Canadian law. So in other words, what they're doing here, uh, if, is there fundraising that goes on here? Is that what they're concerned about? Oh, I'm sure that there's no question that the IRGC has,
1: you know, it's its, it's spies, it's operatives in countries around the world. We certainly have seen reporting in media recently, Bill, about Iranian Canadians who have fe- felt threatened. And we see the same with the Chinese as well. You know, Chinese government putting pressure on Chinese dissidents abroad, including here in Canada. I wouldn't be shocked if there were supporters here in canada uh, of the iranian regime certainly in my time at ceases we had identified as such i don't think they're numerous but again i don't you know have the most current intelligence available but essentially it's to try to crack down on any effort by the irgc to gain support raise money or whatever abroad including here in canada so again from that perspective that's a good move by the canadian government
0: well and to your point uh, I don't think there are too many people that are actually going to be, you know, wearing t shirts, say, I support the IRGC, uh, and, and, or writing checks for them, but, you know, they can still show their support in their own ways, but, uh, which is what organizations like CSIS are for. I mean, you know, I would imagine, uh, those that are suspected of such activities are already under some sense of surveillance, or at least they're keeping an eye on them in some way.
1: That was, that was the whole reason we existed, is to identify yeah. individuals who pose a threat to national security, be it terrorism or whatever, or espionage or, or foreign interference, to identify them, to investigate them. And when it got to the point where it was crossing into from an intelligence to sort of a criminal uh, area... You know, we would pass on information to the RCMP. They would launch their own independent investigation, not using CC's intelligence because it's not evidentiary in nature. And we could get, you know, charges laid in court cases. So, Or in the case of the IRGC, uh, deportations. Uh, you know, if you're not a Canadian citizen and you're engaging in illegal, illegal activity here in Canada for a terrorist organization or something like the IRGC, we can simply punch you back to, back to your country of origin. You don't have a right to be here. And you don't have a right to intimidate Iranian Canadians and other Canadians and to raise money for a group as heinous uh, and as violent as the see.
0: To your knowledge, uh, Phil, and all your experience in this field, uh, has anybody been charged with this? And did those charges stick?
1: I'm rocking my brain, Bill, and I can't think that... I think there was one case many years ago of the... Remember the uh, Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, the LTTE? I was just
0: going to bring that up, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think there was a case about some fundraising for them. We knew the LTTE was very active in Canada. Of course, um, you know, that whole situation, a 30-year civil war between the Tamils and the Sinhalese. There were Canadian Tamils who felt that the Sinhalese were... Acting unfairly, Uh, it was an ethnic-based sort of conflict in 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 Sri Lanka. There were Tamils in Canada who were sympathetic to the LTTE, which of course was a terrorist entity, and and I believe there was a one or two cases in that regard which resulted in in charges and terrorist financing. But it's a real tough thing to prove, Bill, for the reasons we are we already said. You know, no one writes a check saying, you know, Irgc, go go go, and here's twenty dollars kind of thing. It's hard to prove, and it's hard to find them, and it's. It may be hard to have those charges stick in court. So I'm not going to hold my breath. But again, I think the the initial gesture by the Trudeau government is welcome. Um, Should they name the IRGC a terrorist organization? Sure. But as I said earlier, I'm not sure that that is a a significant advantage for CESIS and the RCMP to have them listed as a terrorist organization to investigate. We investigate them anyway, regardless if they're on the list or not. I'm not sure what it gets us in terms of uh, enhancing our, our ability to investigate. And at the end of the day, if if, if uh, necessary and if applicable, uh, lay charges in a Canadian court. Uh,
0: and there's going to be political pushback whether they do this or don't do this. And you know, to your example about the Tamil Tigers, uh, there were huge demonstrations, I remember even in the Toronto area, yeah. uh, both pro and con to that. So th- there's no political win here, is there?
1: Not really. And, you know, I remember as well that here in Ottawa, uh, Bill, um, the Tamil Tigers right on, on Wellington Street in front of Parliament with Tamil Tiger flags, which were de- definitely linked to a terrorist organization parading up and down, you know, meters in front of uh, of the seat of government of Canada. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think any charges are related. Those, we're going back to the 80s and 90s, you know, prior, ni- again, prior to 9-11, prior to the existence of a terrorist list. And so maybe it was harder for authorities to actually figure out what do you charge them with? And but no, I think governments are damned if they do and damned if they don't. I think it's a very fine line you've got to play between you know we we've talked about this before, Bill, with respect to you know the freedom conflict, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and when it kind of crosses into possible criminal activity, it's not an easy game to play. And I think governments, um, you know, need to be careful about doing that because, as you say, they're going to be criticized for doing it and criticized for not doing it.
0: And and that's the political end of this. I mean, let's face it. I mean, if a government decides not to do something like this, invariably, as as sure as the sun rises in the morning, the you know, the opposition parties are going to criticize them for not doing it uh what criticize them if they do i mean that's that's the politics of it uh but what about the international politics of it in a situation like that uh is there blowback from from for instance the iranian regime if if in fact their organization is is declared to be a terrorist organization i mean there are implications and insinuations uh with that designation uh do those countries get upset about it or they say well who cares well, they're going to
1: huff and they're going to puff, but big big deal, right? I mean, you know, at the best of my knowledge, I don't think we, we even we still have an embassy in Tehran. I believe it's been closed for quite some time. We don't have good relations with the Iranians. We don't have good relations with anybody, really, in terms of the Western powers. I don't think there's any consequences for Canada-Iran relations. I mean, what are they going to do, Bill? Um, their embassy here has been closed as well. Again, they're going to try and interfere in in relations in Canada, especially amongst the Iranian expatriate community. And I saw that for for decades when I worked at CISIS. And that's something that we we keep it you know keep track of because you can't you can't hassle and thre- threaten Canadians. That's against the law. So if you're found out to be doing that, you can be charged. I, I don't think there are any significant consequences. The only the only thing though, Bill, I've been thinking a lot about this to do with the nuclear sanctions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Once you start backing a regime like Iran completely in a corner and there's no room for dialogue at all where do you go next? I mean, what, what's what's the end game here? And I'm not saying we should, you know, let the Iranians off scot-free, but there's got to be some level of dialogue here. Otherwise, there's no incentive for the Iranians to, you know, abide by international rules. They simply go down the same path they've been going for, for the last 40 years or so. So again, I think from a diplomacy perspective, there had to be other options out there rather than just saying, you know, you're bad and we're going we're gonna, to you know, send you to your room without your supper and we're not going to talk to you anymore. Well, there, there's no incentive for Iran to change its behavior.
0: Well, and therein lies the, the politics of it, again, especially from the U.S. standpoint. I mean, depending on what regime is in power in Washington, uh, it's a different attitude towards Iran. You know, there there was an arms deal that was, uh, you know, on the table uh, that the Obama administration yeah. thought was going to solve all their problems. Uh, of course, that got torn up as, uh, as soon as Donald Trump took office. So that that's the politics of it. But from the other standpoint, uh, if, in fact, you get this organization mad at you, if the IRGC says, okay, that's it, Canada, we, you're, you're next on our... We've had those threats. I mean, Al-Qaeda has threatened Canadians. I mean, Osama bin Laden included Canada in some of his missives. So mm-hmm. it's there. Uh, and that, I guess that threat still exists no matter what. Even if it's not talked about a whole lot, there's always that situation. But will this, this ban of, of these uh, hundreds of, of, of what they call senior members of this organization uh will that motivate them to say okay we've got to look at canada or is there anything going on here aside from from fundraising i mean you know the as you say there have been attempts at terrorism here in this country in the past uh thankfully our authorities have for the most part uh been able to intercede before anything terrible terrible happened but nonetheless it's it's something that you have to be cognizant of
1: for sure i mean never say never and you know um in my most recent book, The Peaceful Kingdom, I talk about a plot to assassinate uh, Salman Rushdie's wife. Uh, here, when he, yeah. Way back in the remember, late 80s, early 90s, Bill, when Salman Rushdie's satanic verses really upset the Iranians. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini issued a death sentence saying he had insulted is- Islam and had to be killed. And there was a plot that was interdicted by Stasis and the RCMP in the early 1990s here in Canada. That's all in the book. I- I, I can't see Canada sort of the number one enemy on the Iranian list, to be honest. I mean, they have they have bigger fish to fry like the Americans and the EU and the United Kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but certainly I, I think our authorities, the United States are certainly aware of the situation. Again, there has been an active investigation into Iranian interference for as long as I, I've been part of the organization. I think that probably continues. Um, the The challenge, maybe, Bill, is the. Do you have enough resources to look at many things simultaneously? And you and I have talked about this. You know, we've got the Islamist threat. You have the far right threat. You have the foreign interference threat. You have the foreign espionage threat. The more threats you add on to sort of the the blotter or the, you know, the to-do, the to-do list of ceases in the RCMP means you've only got so many people to do these things. So do you have the resources necessary to add one more threat to investigate? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. It certainly puts a lot of pressure on the organization to do more with limited resources. Um, And if they don't, unless they get more money and resources, then it's not entirely clear to me that they'd be able to successfully to determine, to identify this threat and investigate it properly
0: well and i know that part of the, uh, the the reason for the the uh the stress level i guess between the two countries uh was the i guess this organization shooting down a, a plane it was the ukrainian plane as a matter of fact back in 2020 uh and a number of canadians were killed in that incident and they admitted to doing it and i guess they're looking for accountability here but uh, you know accountability leading to what uh charges being laid you're going to bring these people to justice that seems unlikely no, I agree, and and then and then you're talking, you know, Canadian
1: courts versus international courts. I mean, do you get the uh, the court in the Hague involved in this? I I don't know. These are all legal questions that are well above my pay grade, but I think what it does point out, and you make you make a really good point, Bill. This stuff is this is complicated. This is difficult stuff, and this is why I like having conversations with you because we can get to a little bit more to what this stuff all means. It's it's rarely as simple as the headlines say, and and there are a lot of moving parts. There are a lot of actors involved, and I think I wish people would just understand that. You just can't, you know, snap your fingers and say, "Well, we're going to do this to the IRGC, and it's going to, you know, solve all our problems. It'll be unicorns and rainbows tomorrow." Um, it, it's much, much more complex than that. And I think it's important for us to realize what governments can do and what they can't do. Recognize when they do well, criticize them when they don't do well, but acknowledge at the same time that uh, this is these are never easy decisions to make, and that a lot of people are involved. And just, just let's just recognize that
0: you know they're they the complexity of these types of situations absolutely phil as always thank you so much for this and uh, for your perspective on this really appreciate the time today take care you too i'll take care phil Gerski, a former thesis analyst uh, with his perspective on what's going on with the government designation
3: you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml
0: let's focus on what's going on in the u.s political scene uh we know that the midterms are just a few weeks away now uh and uh Uh, It's ebbed and flowed, the support for uh, for President Biden and for Democrats and and who's going to take over the House. A lot of burning questions. And, of course, uh, some of the old things going on about Mar-a-Lago and and presidential documents that have been removed from the White House and Donald Trump's uh, uh, legal concerns these days. Uh, Try to get some focus and some uh, perspective on all of this. so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Good morning. I mean, first of all, start with the, uh, with Trump and some of his accusations. Uh, after the, the raid, of course, of Mar-a-Lago and, and uh, the seizure of a number of documents, uh, Trump lashed out and said, hey, Obama did this very same thing. I mean, that was dismissive because there was no evidence to that. This weekend, he went after George Bush Sr., and uh, said that he took uh, thousands and thousands of documents uh, out of the White House when he left office and, and stored them for his own particular use. Uh, what's what's the, the real story here, Reggie?
3: Well, I mean, look, the, the, the former president uh, is still trying to, you know, play the part of the victim here in that, he didn't do anything wrong and that the documents were his, uh, and now he's trying to make it sound like, well, these documents weren't planted, they were mine to begin with. So you, we have to remember there's there's a, a kind of a circular argument when it comes to uh the former president and what's going on. These accusations now being lobbed at uh at, at George H. W. Bush um, have to do with the fact that uh when there was a library being created for him, uh, you know, there were documents that were being stored to be held in uh in that library eventually, and he was talking about how they, they were stored uh, in you know, in a, in a warehouse or in a Chinese restaurant. And sure, they, they were being stored off-site, but they were being stored in a secured location that had been secured by um, the National Archives. And, and, and so he's kind of distorting the reality to make it seem like it would fit in line with where his complaints are because he had documents stored at Mar-a-Lago. It just didn't work because it is very easy to fact-check the things that the former president says. Um, but, you know, it doesn't really matter because he moves on from it very quickly. So we're talking about it. He's gone on to something else. But the reality is the former president was wrong again.
0: Reggie, is the Justice Department finished uh, searching for documents? I mean, I'm assuming they've done some sort of an inventory because uh, there's some speculation that they may, in fact, start looking at some of Trump's other residences. Is, is, is that uh, something you see happening? Look, the the
3: investigation is ongoing, uh, and the investigation is not simply going to wrap up because we're approaching midterms or because the former president says that he feels that he's being treated uh, unfairly. And there are growing calls to say, well, look, maybe we need to look at the Bedminster golf course. Maybe we need to look at Trump Tower. Maybe we need to look at X, Y and Z property that's still in the hands of the former president, because there is a fear here that so many documents could be spread around. And that's because we are hearing from the National Archives that documents that were supposed to have been returned were not returned. Documents Donald Trump said were returned. It's now being discovered uh, from new information coming out via a number of books, including from uh, a New York Times reporter, that uh, that the documents weren't returned even though they said they were returned. So this is a growing problem for Donald Trump. It is still kind of a festering problem uh, for the Republican Party, but the Department of Justice is going forward. They are not slowing down. There have been some kind of um, bits of turbulence with with court cases to try and slow down but at the end of the day the Department of Justice is going to do what the Department of Justice does um, and if that opens up an investigation into a new building they're going to say well look that's where the facts and that's where the information has led us.
0: There was also some speculation as you were reporting a, a week or so ago uh, that Trump was going to petition the Supreme Court to, to make a ruling uh, about uh, the, the documentation and, and the ownership of, of said documents as well. Uh, is, it, is, is that something that that you see in the cards here i mean I, I can understand why he wants to look that way he's stacked the court with his own appointees uh, during his time as president and figured he's going to get a pretty uh, a favorable hearing in a situation like that but the court can refuse to actually hear this case can't they
3: of course they can um and, and you know we'll have to see you know if and when this gets up to the supreme court ultimately what the decision might be but we also need to find out still you know what what Trump's team might be trying to take to the Supreme Court. Are they trying to take the entire search? Are they trying to take information um, that is linked just to the special master, which we need to remember Trump put in place himself? Are they trying to take a very small kind of niche argument to the Supreme Court that may give him a partial victory, but at the same time, allow for federal investigation to continue? Uh, there's, There's a lot that was taken to the appeals court. There was a lot the appeals court sent back. And now, you know, it's left to the Trump team to try and figure out how they're going to do this and whether or not the 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 Supreme Court is going to find itself siding with uh, the former president. Uh, You know, they try to stay out of political, um, you know, activities going on in the United States. Some people will say, well, look, they just overturned Roe. That had to do with politics. The Supreme Court will argue otherwise. But at the same time, the Supreme Court is also here to try and set precedent. So, you know, it's kind of an arms up in the air. What would SCOTUS do if any of this Mar-a-Lago search wound up on their uh, on their docket? We still have to wait to see what Trump might try to throw
0: at them in the first place. And again, it's it's it hasn't happened yet, but I mean, we'll we'll see just what kind of a process we'll be watching for. Your reporting on that. Uh, we mentioned off the top here that uh, the midterms are just a couple of weeks away now, uh, and and boy, the support for the Democrats has ebbed and flowed. And uh, you know, you've been reporting about how they were so down in the dumps. They seem to have a resurgence, and there's a possibility that maybe they could hold on to to both houses, maybe even increase their seat total. But uh, I guess the big thing hanging over the heads of everybody these days is, uh, just like here in this country, our energy prices. I mean, OPEC has really dealt a blow to the Biden administration by, first of all, reducing production and, of course, skyrocketing prices at the pumps again. Uh, Voters are going to be angry, Reggie. Of course they are. Uh, And this is where Democrats
3: are going to have to try and get out ahead of that anger to say, look, this is not the president's fault uh, if gas prices are going up. Remember, Americans, there is a war that's going on in Ukraine that has been pushed by uh, Russia that has increased energy prices uh, around the world. They'll also have to get in front of the argument that, look, OPEC uh, is a decision uh, that is made from the countries that make up OPEC. But at the end of the day, the, the final kind of yes and no comes from Saudi Arabia and Russia. These are not, you know, allies, so-called great friends, at least uh, of the United States. Uh, and they may be doing things to, you know, for whatever their reasons are that are going to have a political ramification for uh, for the Biden administration. Um you know, Republicans will pounce as soon as the prices go up and they will ignore the kind of root cause. They will look at this and say this is a a governing uh, issue to do w- with the president. Um, and the president's going to have to look to say, you know, I may have made a mistake when he went to Saudi Arabia. And that fist bump uh, with MBS was kind of seen around the world. This ultimately was, um, you know, a failed effort by the United States to score Uh, At least cheaper energy. And I think it's going to become more problematic as it gets colder in the US because sure gas is going to go up but home heating is also going to go up. This is going to hit Democrats, it is going to provide a talking point for Republicans, it's just a matter as to whether Democrats can get out ahead of this.
0: Yeah, the the fist bump picture is something, as as you've said, is is going to come back and haunt Biden. As a matter of fact, I know the Republicans are jumping all over about this. Uh, And and just so our listeners are clear, uh, Saudi Arabia has a pretty solid relationship with Putin and Russia. So you have to wonder about the political implications of cutting back oil production right now uh with the full knowledge that it's going to have a a negative effect on the biden administration and of course the midterms
3: sure and and look it's going to have a negative impact on biden it's going to have a negative impact on on midterms but you know on a more global sense this is also going to have an impact uh right around the world because it is Mm -hmm. going to increase gas prices uh and you know looking at the us alone um sure at the beginning of the war, the U.S. started to go after and lay these economic sanctions on uh, on Russia. But what did they do? They were putting the sanctions on Russian gas. They were not putting these sanctions on Russian oil. So Russia has been able to continue pumping oil, selling it to places like China, selling it to places uh, like India, and then being able to cozy up along with the OPEC nations to say, well, look, we can cut back on the rest of the world uh, because, you know, for reason X, Y and Z, this is going to ring close to home for the average American because it is going to make things more um, more expensive. And the United States finds itself in a tough position. Sure, they can speak tough about Russia. They have a harder time speaking tough about uh, Saudi Arabia because there is um, a reliance on uh, on the kingdom. Think and go back. You know, Saudi Arabia's links to 9-11, Saudi Arabia's links to the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, it hasn't done anything to lead to a direct or, or kind of tough pushback on the country, and I don't think this one will either.
0: When, when, you always wonder about the motivation when, when people go to vote, exactly what what's in their heads, whether it's going to be oil prices, the price of the pump. Uh, And so many other issues. And and you've been reporting on on, on a myriad of issues, of course, that the American voters are concerned about. Uh, But crime is always going to be at the top of that list or near the top of that list each and every time. And I know that's that's a bone that the GOP really seem to be gnawing on right now about how the Democrats are, quote unquote, soft on crime. That's not a new approach, Reggie, but it seems to be an effective one.
3: Sure. And it it, it, h- it harkens back to the 2020 election when Republicans really seized on Democrats with the quote unquote defund the police. And they're really trying to bring that back into um, into the fold right now by saying, look, crime is a problem uh, across this country. And there are Democrats who are still trying to get in the way uh, of solving that. And I think the question is, what is crime in the United States? Is it something that needs to be dealt with? Is it something that needs to be lessened, which Democrats do want to do? Or is it something that needs to be capitalized? And is it something that needs to be used um, as a way to draw in support? That is how Republicans treat crime. They will look and say, look, Democrats aren't doing anything. That is why 38 or 39 percent uh, of the electorate sees crime as such a problem. Uh, And Democrats are trying to come to terms with this by saying, look, we had people in the past who were calling for a defunding of the police. There are Democrats that are now actively working, and the House has done so, to increase Uh, funding for police budgets, understanding that um, the messaging may have been confusing, convoluted back in 2020 during the George Floyd uh, protests and riots around the U.S. They're trying to write that. But Republicans are going to run with this and say, Democrats are soft. Join us. We are the ones who are going to fight this. The problem is Republicans put very few legislative policies or ideas forward on how they're going to tackle it. They just use this as a boogeyman uh, to ensure that they're going after Democrats.
0: In other words, everything that they see in the streets and, and the gun violence, of course, is is because the Democrats are soft. But, I mean, I, I kind of feel like we're going back in, in time to the 1960s and, and, and the and the the race wars that went on there. And, you know, during the, the Martin Luther King and the battle for, for rights for blacks, uh, because it's getting pretty ugly, especially I know that you've talked in past reporting, Reggie. Uh, there's a lot of interesting races right across the country, but Georgia is one that really steps up. The Herschel Walker thing is one. Uh, But you've got some really, really inflammatory speeches by some of the Republicans there, uh, basically blaming blacks for the high crime rates, saying that they're not soft on crime, they are the crime. Uh, It's polarizing, certainly, but I guess they feel that's going to motivate white voters uh, to step up, because obviously uh, the Republicans looked at what happened in the last election in Georgia and figured, well, you know, suppressing the black vote may be a key to victory for them. Uh, But they're going about it in a way that kind of brings people back to the days of George Wallace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
3: look, they're 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 beyond using dog whistles um, in the Republican Party. They're simply calling the dog by the name, uh, and 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 it's it's quite frankly, it's appalling to hear some kind of uh, Republican lawmakers use this as a way to justify, um, you know, getting the white vote by saying that you know black Americans are are coming to get what whites have. I mean, the, these are. Um, these are, are horrendous comments to be made, and they are being pushed back on within the Republican Party by some and by Democrats uh, as a whole. Uh, but it it just goes to show that you can have a Republican Party that says, look, crime is problematic across this country. But at the same time, you may have some of that crime being sparked because of comments that are being made by uh, and within the Republican Party. And this goes far beyond the vote. I mean, even at voting stations, there is a fear that there could be um, a violent uptick uh, or at least violence against people who work at polls because there's been so much mis- and disinformation over the last couple of years about just how free and fair elections are in this country. And oftentimes it is at the driving words of the Republican Party. So this, again, is a party that uses, capitalizes on crime, but doesn't do anything uh at least publicly, to try and put plans out there to say, well, look, here's how we're actually going to tackle this problem that we see as being such a crisis across this country.
0: Well, and and therein lies, I guess, the the double standard that's in place here. And it's going to be fascinating to do this. Uh, Listen, one other thing I wanted to get your your read on. Uh, Ron DeSantis, of course, made news a couple of weeks ago by putting a bunch of of immigrants uh, on planes and sending them up to Martha's Vineyard. And, And, of course, that made headlines and there was a lot of pushback on that. Uh, But I found it interesting that in the wake of the terrible hurricane damage that occurred in that state, uh, now they're saying that, uh, you know what, there's a lack of people to clean up here because a lot of the the immigrants and the migrant labor uh, has been shipped off. Uh, And uh, is DeSantis going to wear this or are people oblivious to the fact that there's a cause and effect here?
3: I think that you know this is an opportunity for for Desantis to say, well, look, you know, there is a reality that's in this this state that you know the workforce is being impacted by the lack of immigration that is happening uh, because of policies at the border slash my own policies. But I don't think that this is going to be an egg in the face moment uh, for uh, for the governor. He will look at this and and still use this as um, as a political opportunity to say that this is a failure of the Biden administration that you have so many people crossing the border and he is simply trying to put them in places that he. He believes, uh, you know, they could be of, you know, quote unquote, better use, putting them in democratic states that are uh, more welcoming by being sanctuary cities. But you're right in the fact that this is having an impact on the workforce, not just in Florida, though, Bill, right across the country. There are jobs that are oftentimes filled by seasonal uh, 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 workers uh, that are uh, that come through the immigration system that aren't being filled and haven't been filled for years now. And that is having an impact on how the economy is moving forward, whether or not. Uh, You know, Democrats are able to capitalize on that uh, and say this is problematic or how Ron DeSantis, you know, tries to avoid the the realities of his own decision making. You know, that's going to be something that will play out and and voters will have the ultimate say on this. But it just goes to show that immigration, no matter what the party is, no matter who the president is, there are, uh, you know, pluses and minuses. um, And this country is really trying to deal with how to move forward with it.
0: A very incendiary situation as we draw closer to the midterms down there. And, of course, we'll be watching for your reporting on that on Global National, as per always. Uh, Reggie, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.